Hi, I'm Nicole Ferraro, and this is The Divide, a podcast from Light Reading exploring the ongoing digital divide, why and where it still exists, and what needs to be done to get people everywhere connected to reliable, high-speed internet. Today, I am joined by Dan York, Director of Online Content at the Internet Society. He and his colleagues recently released a report called Perspectives on LEO Satellites, Using Low-Earth Orbit Satellites for Internet Access. We get into the details of the report, including where LEO satellite broadband seems best positioned to address the digital divide, plus the affordability and capacity challenges we're seeing emerge with systems like Starlink, what to watch for in the satellite broadband space going into 2023, and more. All right. Dan, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Nicole. Great to be here. So I'm excited to talk to you today. Before we dive into um, the report that I invited you on here to talk a bit about, can you please introduce uh, yourself and your role at the Internet Society? Sure. My name is Dan York. I work, as you said, for the Internet Society. Uh, I've been online since the mid-1980s, actually. been with the Internet Society for about 11 years. And my focus this year has been as the project leader of a project around looking at low-Earth orbit satellites, which is this document we're here to talk about today. But I've been involved in a number of other roles within our communications team, within open standards, within a lot of different aspects around that. So basically looking at you know, how do we talk about the open internet and how do we help uh, people understand the choices that we have for the future of the internet? Okay, awesome. So as you mentioned, you guys recently put out a report on using LEO satellites for internet access, low earth orbit satellites. So um, I want to talk about some of the specifics of that report, but just to establish the basics, can you talk a little bit about why LEOs are better for internet connectivity than geo satellites, for example? Sure. So we've had satellite internet for a couple of decades, right? Mm-hmm. Several decades, going back a long time. And those that satellite internet access has come from what you mentioned, geo, geosynchronous, geostationary satellites that are out at about 36,000 kilometers away from the surface of the of the Earth. And that's they they orbit at basically the same location around the Earth. They they're in sync with the planet, so they're they're there. This is what people have done for you know satellite TV, for satellite, any kind of broadcast satellite. You, you know, you stick an antenna out there, you point it at the satellite, you get your connection, and, and that's how it works. And they provide internet access. They've provided connectivity for people in many parts of the world who just haven't had any other options. The challenge that they that they face is just that it it takes a long time for a packet to get from, from our planet out to the uh, satellite, the geosatellite, and then back uh, roughly around, it can be around 600 milliseconds or more. That, that delay, what we call latency or lag, that's too long for something like this conversation we're having now. You can't really do a Zoom call over a connection like that. It, it, just, it just won't work. Uh, you can't be in in virtual worlds or, or you know, you're not going to do Roblox or Fortnite or something like that. You're not going to um, be involved in any kind of esports or gaming. You're not going to do high frequency training. You're not going to do anything that's that's really in that kind of that needs that 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 low latency, high speed connections. So that's where Leo's low Earth orbit satellites, and and there's also a brand of medium Earth satellites or Mios, but Leo's have taken the the interest because they are. Um, they are orbiting down underneath 2,000 kilometers, typically more around four or 500 kilometers away from the surface of the Earth, and they give you low latency, high-speed connections. Now, it's not as fast as like a fiber or broadband connection. Those might be maybe, say, five or 10 milliseconds of latency, so very fast. 
but they but they're 40 or 50 they're they're within the realm of what you what you can use with and do these kind of things and participate in this kind of modern world with uh with that full speed high speed low latency connections and that's the that's why there's so much excitement coupled with the fact that we've had new launch systems you know reusable rockets mass produced satellites all these things that have together brought about this revolution that is creating all of these this excitement around how can we connect the unconnected using these kind of satellites? Right. Okay. So we've we have Leo satellites um, delivering internet access all over the place at at the moment. Um, they're they're across the United States. They're in war zones. Uh, you know, Starlink is certainly the the best known, I think, player on the market at the moment. Um, we have Amazon getting into the game, um, but. I would love to hear your thoughts on where you think globally the best use cases have been for Leo satellites to address the issue of the digital divide. Yeah, I, I think so. One of the things when the Internet Society started this this work at the beginning of 2022, we we somewhat naively thought, oh, we'll be able to come out with a position that says, you know, are these good for the internet or are they terrible or whatever. <laughs> and you know, the more we got into it, we realized on one level this industry is so young, it's so it's so new. You know, but the Leo's industry, let's step back. There was a, a Leo's, you know, back in the 1990s, Teledesic, there was a number of different companies that were trying to do this, but the timing is right now and things are happening. You mentioned SpaceX's Starlink, which is obviously the, the most well-known. Um, OneWeb is another company that has about 400 of their 600 satellites up there. And uh, Amazon Project Kuiper launching next year. You have a number of these other, there's, there's about 16 kind of mega constellations that are being proposed from companies all over the world, um, you know, from China, from India, from um, different areas. The EU just announced last week that they're going to be trying to put together a, a, a system to go and, and look at how they can launch their own EU, you know, uh, des you know developed system. And so there's lots of people playing out there, and that's really the the interesting part of what's happening right now and where it's so new. So we are seeing, though, back to your question around use cases. You know, one of the certainly the use cases is obviously individuals, right? And people who are in remote areas who are in different places where they don't have any other option. And that's, I think, probably one of the biggest cases we see. It's the it's people who, or, or maybe they do have another option and it might be a geo, you know, a, a geo satellite provider or something like that, or some kind of microwave connection or something that doesn't give them the full speed kind of connection they want. That's a, a great market for for folks that are looking at that, and I think that's really the one of the main areas. But along with that is community centers, things like schools, libraries, you know, other kinds of community centers. Those are places that are finding that they can all of a sudden have, you know, in some ways, life changing connectivity that can really help people and and bring about the uh, the ability for people to participate in the global internet, in the economy, to get the education, do all those kinds of things. Um, over the scope of the year, actually, this was part of one of the challenges of writing this document was that as we were going along, things kept changing because we right. write about something like, oh, hey, there's, you know, it's, it's too bad there aren't, you know, it's limited to geographic places. And then SpaceX would change it and be like, oh, now you can move this. Oh, it's great. But now it's too bad you can't do it by in motion. And then whoops, they change that. So it's a, it's a, it's an industry in motion, you know, that, that's right. doing all this. But now, you know, you can put, um, you can put an antenna. Uh, they call a user terminal in the language of satellites, but an antenna, you can put that on a, on a moving vehicle on a, on a, you know, it can be an RV, but it could be a car. It could be anything like that. It could be a boat plane. You've got this kind of access to be able to go and do that. 
Um, another big space is uh, what we call community networks, where, and I know you, I've seen you've had some different um, conversations on the show in the past about, you know, groups that are coming together to create their own internet connectivity. One of the challenges for communities has always been what's what they call backhaul in the industry, connectivity from that community network back to the rest of the internet. Leos provide a way, again, where you can get a high-speed kind of connection into, uh, into to the rest of the internet to provide the connectivity that community may, may need in some way. Um, and then the other one I might mention is disaster response, you know, mm-hmm. in, in relief. Obviously, we've seen the headlines around what's happening in the Ukraine and its devastated infrastructure and how Starlink has been able to come in. The, the, the dishes have helped, you know, provide connectivity in a space that wasn't there. But here in the United States, where I live, um, we're seeing, I see it with, a, there's a group called the ITDRC, the Information Technology Disaster Resources Center, which goes into different places where there's disasters and they provide, they help get connectivity back up, both for first responders, but also for the community and stuff like that. Just recently with Hurricane Ian here in the United States down in Florida, you know, it wiped out internet connectivity. Nothing was there. Well, the ITDRC folks could bring their their trucks down there, their vans, you know, put a trailer in some place, pop up a Starlink, uh, you know, antenna and be able to get that connectivity coming down there. And then they can provide Wi-Fi or cellular connectivity for that area. Super simple. You know, similarly, there's um, ITDRC folks out in California working with wildfires where they could just take a pickup truck, drive it out to somewhere, pop up their Starlink dish. Boom. They've got, con- you know, connectivity for a local incident command or whatever else. Amazing potential there. And, and, that's just a symbol, I think, of really it provides an added layer of resiliency and, and connectivity in different places. Yeah. So I wonder how all of that fits in with, um, you know, there's so much funding coming down from the federal government now in the U.S. for broadband buildouts, um, and th- there's going to be billions of dollars in, in the coming years um, for years to come. And there's been a lot of debate about how uh, that should go primarily toward fiber infrastructure and, you know, some of it toward wireless. Uh, there's not been much discussion about any of it going toward satellite. There was also um, an issue with the Rural Digital Opportunity Fund funding this year where Starlink initially got uh, awarded funding and then it had that funding uh, rescinded by the FCC. Um, So I'm just curious for your thoughts on how you think LEO Satellite fits into the whole uh, U.S. broadband infrastructure play now that all of this funding is coming down. And I'd love your thoughts as well on the FCC decision around Starlink. Um, You know, notably, the awards were made uh, shortly before the pandemic came along and changed our lives and, uh, you know, which also precipitated these billions of dollars in, in infrastructure funding, which changed how we're looking at broadband here. So, um, so I guess, is there still room for funding LEO and all of that? Um, is there room for standardizing ha- funding LEO satellites for uh, disaster recovery purposes in the U.S.? Um, I will stop asking this question now, which has gone on for 10 minutes and let you answer it. <laughs> well, I, so- I, I don't know that I, I could really comment on the specifics of, of what happened there with the RDOF funding that was awarded and not and all that kind of thing. I, I think one challenge with that, all of that funding that was there is, is again, it's the timing of the industry, right? Because all this funding's come along, it's out there, it's it's getting out there, and the satellite providers are um, 
I mean, they're just coming online. I mean, obviously SpaceX is here and, and for them, you know, they were in there looking at that kind of space, but so much of this other part is coming along. I'll be honest and say, I think if the fiber connectivity, if we're, if we're honest about this, you know, if the fiber build out, you know, it can be fast. If you can get a direct fiber connection into your home, that's going to be better than any kind of wireless connection, whether it's from satellite or anything, it's going to be it's going to be have a lower latency. It's probably, you know, five to 10 milliseconds. Uh, it can, it can also, one of the interesting features is um, most satellite connectivity, and that includes the Leo so far. I mean, we only really have the example of SpaceX that we could test, but we'll yeah. see with the others as they come on there. You know, they have a, um, uh, a Starlink has an asymmetrical upload download. So you have a bigger download than a, and a smaller upload. And that's typical, right, of a cable connection or many other different kinds of connectivity. But, you know, fiber can give you symmetrical connections where your where your connect, your upload can be, you know, on par with your with your download. And as we get more people doing a lot of um, creators, you know, YouTube people working, you know, doing whatever or or streamers or gaming or, or people just working from home and doing a lot of video conferencing and other pieces like that, that upload becomes important. Yeah. So. And it's not necessarily weather dependent or, or you know, obstruction dependent, that type of thing, because you've got that fiber connection there. So I think fiber is, is an excellent, you know, choice if you can get it. But the challenge is that, right? It, it's, it's, it's fixed. It's only in that one location you're at. It can, the cost can be more and it's not available everywhere. So when, when you don't have access to that, you know, so I mean, I, on one level, I applaud the, you know, let's build more fiber. Let's get it out there. Let's get that kind of connectivity. It's a good thing. I would like, I mean, I, I think we do have to look at for people who can't get fiber, who aren't in that space. You know, I live in Vermont. I'm in a suburb, suburb where I have excellent gigabit, you know, cable-based connectivity. Uh, but 10 minutes from my house, there are people who have actually no connectivity. They can't even get a good mobile signal, right? For those folks, you know, something like Starlink is awesome because they can get that kind of high-speed connectivity. I think realistically, and this is one of our concerns that we raised in our paper, which I should, I'll put a plug in and say, you can go to internetside.org slash Leo's and you can yes. get the paper. Um, but in that paper, we identify this affordability issue is probably one of the biggest you know, concerns because realistically here in the United States, it, it costs right now with the one provider we can look at, um, it, Starlink, it's uh, about $600 to get the initial dish and then about 110 uh, a month. Now, they're changing that. They've got different kinds. They've responded to the market. They're getting different kinds of models. And in other parts of the world, they have, you know, much different pricing models. But it's still, it can be a lot for somebody, for the people who probably need it the most. And, and this is true around the world. So yeah. one of the questions that I think the open questions we have is what, what mechanisms are out there to go and help bring people online? And these kind of programs, the funding programs that you're seeing are certainly ones I, I wish I could remember the exact place, but it was somewhere I want to say it was in Virginia. I saw that a school district was using some of the, the COVID relief funds, et cetera, to be able to go and and fund some students to, to have um, Starlink dishes and two years of a subscription. I think that those kind of programs are probably what's going to be needed to bridge the digital divide and bring people in, you know, to include people who can't afford the regular kind of thing. So, right. okay. Yeah. So we'll yeah. have to see where Maybe. that all goes. I, yeah. I'm, I'm curious. It'd be interesting to see next year when you have Amazon coming in with their project Kuiper, you know, if, if there's anybody who can look at, you know, how to reduce costs and look at, you know, doing mass produced consumer based things, I, I have to think it's Amazon. So I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic. I hope that maybe we'll see what they can do and how they can affect it. I mean, 
they have to launch their satellites first, right? <laughs> they got to get them up <laughs> right. in the air and yeah. all that stuff. So look, sometime next year, I look forward to being able to see, you know, can they do anything to make it more affordable? Yeah. Um, so there's also been, you've been referencing some of the the speed and latency issues. We've seen some data from Ookla this year that as Starlink grows, it gets slower in some markets. Um, what should we be drawing from from that? Yeah, this is one of the questions and one of the things we've raised and, and we've raised it directly with some of the vendors and others and so we don't actually understand the full capacity. There isn't really independent research yet that talks about the full capacity of, of what these systems can do. You know, those UCLA results that you mentioned, you know, showed that there were decreases in download speeds in multiple regions. Um, we saw that SpaceX introduced some new service levels where you had prioritized traffic up to a certain level and then deprioritized above that. You know, certainly if I go to the Reddit, our Starlink forum, I can see people complaining about, you know, I used to have this, now I have that. The big question we just don't know is, you know, is this just growing pains, right? Uh, Starlink has 3,500 satellites up in the air on their way to uh, 40, I don't remember the exact number, 4,500, 4,700, something on that line. But then they also have coming up beyond that, they've got another filing for, uh, it's 4,400. They've got another filing for their Gen 2 configuration, which will have almost 30,000 satellites. So, you know, the question really comes down to, is this, are these growing pains or, or are there inherent, are there inherent limitations within each cell, you know, that people are connected into? And we don't know the answer yet. Um, you know, it's fair to say you could imagine from some of the things that it looks like they're oversubscribed in some areas, but yeah. you know, they're launching like 50 satellites every other week, it seems almost. So right. at, at what point, you know, is this just growing pains? We don't know. One of our pleas, I think, for the industry is we'd like to be able to get access to data, to, to have researchers be able to do some testing, kind of like what we do, you know, on any on regular broadband, right? We can do right. testing on, on, you know, on, on, on whether it's wireless or whether it's fixed. We can do testing on those kind of things. We want to get to the point where we can do that on satellite systems, too, and be able to know what are the kind of issues here. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about some other issues because your report, it, it talks about um, not just using LEO to solve some digital divide challenges, but also the uh, security and privacy implications that might be coming along with these systems. So can you talk a little bit about what you were looking into there and some of your findings? Sure. I, I think the, uh, again, this is the the challenge that we really only have SpaceX uh, and their yeah. Starlink system. You know, I should be clear. OneWeb is also out there. They have commercial deployment, but they typically do it through resellers and their, their, their models are a little different. They're not going direct to consumer, at least right now. Anyway, so, so they're a little bit different in that kind of regard. But, you know, one of the questions is how secure is the overall system? You know, what in the security world, you talk about the attack surface, the, you know, the, the, the range of different things that are out there. We saw, um, around the time actually of the, of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there were, um, some reports that, uh, some of the traditional geo satellite systems were having problems and connectivity issues. And it looked like there was some attacks on those systems. Actually, it doesn't look like there were attacks right. directly on those, on those systems, on the equipment that was there. They, they bricked. That was they, Viasat, they, right? It was Viasat in that case, right. a geo provider, one of the big geo providers. A lot of their systems were, were, uh, were bricked by whatever you want to call it. They were, they were made, they didn't work. 
Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and um, <laughs> they stop working. And, That's um, right. You know, so so what does that look like? What you know, what are the security when when you're bringing in a Leo environment, a Leo system? What are the security ramifications you're adding? Not only in the um, you know, I mean, because let's be honest, we don't really know what our our ISP. You know, they give us a Wi-Fi router or something, and we don't know exactly what security is there, and we don't know what security is going to be there with a Leo provider. But it is a question around what else is there. What's the security of the system of the data as it flows across the the constellation of satellites as it gets to the ground station, on, which is the other end, and gets out to the rest of the internet? It does introduce a whole range of of other actors or other places in there. And you know, it, it, this is just areas that we need to understand. What are the security aspects? What are the privacy aspects? You know, I'm, I'm very pleased that, you know, when we've used, when I've done some trials on Starlink, it does support end-to-end encryption. You know, I can use it over from my computer to this. So I can, I would expect it to, right? They're just, they're, they want to be another pipe. And so, but it does. You want to be sure that, that your information is being confidentially handled across those networks, just as it is across a fiber network or, a, right. you know, a mobile, any of those kind of things. So those are questions and, and we don't yet have the answers. And, but we, as we're launching these thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of satellites, we want to be sure that we're not creating some kind of massive new security or privacy issues for the broader, the whole internet in that space. Yeah, that would be great if we could uh, avoid doing that by accident. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Another thing we're all concerned about, apparently, is orbital debris, environmental concerns related to these satellites. So um, tell, tell me a bit about what your report looked into there. Sure, sure. Yeah. I, one of the things people don't necessarily understand initially is that when you launch these satellites, and, and again, you know, you're, we're seeing them launch at, you know, 50 at a time from SpaceX and, and, and on from there, those satellites, because they're in low Earth orbit, they're in an area that, you know, they, they, could, they could decline, they could like, you know, come back to Earth. So they have propellant that keeps them up there and that kind of stuff and things, but they only have a projected five-year lifespan. And then they will deorbit, as they say. They will basically fall out of the sky, burn up in the upper atmosphere, do all that kind of stuff. And and so there is a there is a concern about well, what happens if one stops working? How do you how do you get in touch with it? How do you how do you do something like that? The vendors, uh, the operators, are all very focused around this. The UN is very focused around this. There's a whole number of accords. Um, the FCC. It, it's a little peculiar in the way every company it wants to launch goes to the regulator in their country. So SpaceX yeah. and Amazon, Project Kuiper being US companies work with the FCC. The FCC has put some stringent things around space debris and stuff. So this is a big concern. You know, what? how do you do it? What, what happens? There's a lot of stuff going on in low Earth orbit. It's where, you know, the International Ch- Space Station is, the Chinese Space Station, all of so many other satellites that are up there. Um, and, and we're only talking about constellations for broadband internet access. There's a whole ton of other constellations going up for, you know, monitoring of weather, for I- internet of things devices, for, yeah, I mean, there's so much going on in this space. So yeah, I having, can't be bothered with all that. I can only, I, I know on. my, my, my brain can only, I look at the log list and I'm like, yeah, I know. So, yeah, no, but, broadband, but I mean, no. you know, if one of these things, you know, breaks yeah. up or something or crashes into another one and you create, you know, um, uh, debris in there, it can danger everything else when it's yeah. orbiting the Earth, that kind of thing. So there's a lot of attention being paid to space debris. 
it, what's interesting, there's also some companies com- being created that are looking at how to go up there and clean up space debris. I mean, and and there's things with satellites looking at how do you have, you know, um, uh, like things you could grasp onto. So, you know, like you could go and you could have, um, I mean, we may see, you know, we may see the age where we have, uh, you know, uh, uh, garbage trucks basically going around uh, Leo oh space God. collecting up the old debris. I mean, <laughs> You know, not far off from some movies that have been out there in different ways. But, you know, well, well, that, yeah. that's a concern. I think the larger piece that you mentioned, too, we don't actually fully understand the environmental impact of all of this. And I think this is one of those big open questions because we're launching, you know, hundreds and thousands of satellites. And we will continue to be launching these because we have to be replacing them every five years. So it's kind of a perpetual launch cycle that we're, we're going to be on for the next, however, right. and, and indefinitely. And, you know, what are the, what are the impacts of all those rocket launches? What happens with all these satellites when there's thousands of them burning up in the upper atmosphere? You know, these are all questions that we, we don't know. Um, as we were putting this document to, uh, to publishing out there, the, the U S general accounting office, the GAO came out basically with a report saying to the FCC that, um, you know, Hey, you need to have stricter environmental, um, you know, uh, impact assessments, basically that kind of thing of these things, because you haven't been. And uh, the FCC under its new current leadership said, um, you're right. So I, it'll be very interesting to see what happens there. Will we get more data? Um, I, I hope I hope we will, but I also hope we don't necessarily slow down the process as well. We'll have to see how that all balances out. But we don't know. And this is an area that we definitely need more research in because we don't want to, again, build something that winds up giving us phenomenal Internet access at a cost of, you know, doing something in our upper atmosphere or something like that. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, OK, so we need more research. We probably need more regulations, um, I guess, going. Oh, I, I, I'm putting words in your mouth. Maybe you're not saying we need more regulation, <laughs> need more regulations. But <laughs> well, yeah. just based on what you're saying, it might seem like we may need some regulation. I, we certainly need clarity, you know, and, and we, need, we need research, we need clarity and and I, the form of which that takes, I don't know. I mean, the International Telecommunications Union is where a lot of this spectrum discussion happens. There's a big right. event next year called the World Radio Congress, uh, I'm, which is all about spectrum and, and you need spectrum to communicate from the satellites, to the antennas and from the satellites, to the ground stations. I think there's going to be a lot of discussion around going on around this, around, you know, how do you do this kind of communication safely, securely, all those different kinds of things. It's it's going to be a lot of policy discussions over the next couple of years, which is kind of why we wrote this paper was to yeah. say, these are the questions as we have these policy discussions, how do we shape the future of this space? What do we need to be talking about? And, and these are the questions we, we encourage people to be asking. Awesome. Okay. And just a final question. I think you've mostly covered this, but going into next year, um, as far as LEO satellite connectivity is concerned, what are the big things you're going to be watching for? I think the big things we're going to be watching for is probably number one is the competition, you know, mm-hmm. because again, we only SpaceX and Starlink have been providing awesome connectivity, but they're the only player right now in a large scale. So I think as we see OneWeb complete its constellation and bring and bring it on there, I think we'll also see, um, you know, if Amazon Project Kuiper is looking at the first quarter of next year to launch their first satellites. We have uh, the Canadian company Telesat. We have a number of other different companies. We also have, you know, some of the traditional, the geo companies are, you know, looking to either purchase or work with Leo companies in different ways. Um, I've seen some of your recent light reading interviews about uh, some of the moves with SES and their, their 
O3B and, and the, the Mio space. I mean, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. It's also interesting. I, I think we're seeing an increased level of competition with, uh, with the, the, the terrestrial ground-based you know, ISPs looking to accelerate their fiber rollout so that they don't wind up losing you know, uh, customers to Starlink and the other Leo sat providers that are out there. So to me, at the end of the day, I want more and better connectivity for everyone to get, you know, we, we believe that the internet's for everyone and we should be able to get everyone on in some form, everybody who wants it and can, can get there affordably and all that kind of stuff. So I, I'm all in for the competition. I'm excited to see what will happen. I think that's really going to be the, the interesting space is see where do we get with these? What kind of uh, connectivity? What kind of capacity do we get? Can we make these affordable? Can they get the capacity to start connecting as much as we want on there? And so I think that's really the exciting part about the industry and, uh, and really why we encourage people to read documents like this to, uh, to help, help shape the, where this is all going. It's a great document. I will make sure to link to it in all the places that we put this podcast. Thank you so much for taking some time to talk with me about it. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you, Nicole. This was great. Thank you again, Dan, for joining me. Thank you as well to our producer, Pierre Landriau, for making this episode. Be sure to subscribe to the Light Reading Podcast for more episodes of The Divide, as well as interviews and insights from the Light Reading team. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.